Raised by wolves with canine DNA in his blood, having trained more than 24,000 vets, helping you and your fur babies thrive. Live in studio, it's Pet Talk Today with Will Bangura, answering your pet behavior and training questions. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome your host and favorite pet behavior expert, Will Bangura. Good Saturday morning. It's May 22nd. Thanks for tuning in and letting us be part of your Saturday morning. I'm Will Vangora, and sitting beside me is the always beautiful and recently married Brittany Duchesne. And you're listening to Pet Talk today on the Pulse of Arizona, 1100 KFNX. Now, most Saturdays, most shows, we're here taking your calls and your emails and answering your questions about your pet's behavior problems. But today, I get the chance to ask the questions. Today, uh, we have as our very special guest, Dr. Christopher Pockel, board-certified veterinary behaviorist. Um, I've wanted to have a veterinary behaviorist on the show for, gosh, a very long time, it, almost a year. Um, it's a specialty that is in huge demand um, and a specialty that has a very limited number of veterinary behaviorists available in this country to be able to help companion animals, you know, mostly uh, pet cats, pet dogs, but uh, a specialty that needs to be discussed um, as there are possible components uh, that uh, a veterinary behaviorist is uniquely qualified to be able to help treat when we're talking about uh, behavior problems in uh, in our pets. Um, today, um, we are going to be speaking with Dr. Pockel. Um, Dr. Christopher Pockel received his veterinary degree from the University of Minnesota in 2002 and became board certified by the American College of Veterinary Behaviorists in 2010. Uh, he's operated both house call and office-based behavior practices and is currently the owner and lead clinician at the Animal Behavior Clinic in Portland, Oregon. Dr. Packle lectures regularly throughout the United States as well as internationally, teaches courses annually at multiple veterinary schools in the United States. He is a sought-after expert witness for legal cases involving animal behavior and serves on the editorial advisory board for DVM 360. Dr. Packle is also a vice president of veterinary behavior on the executive leadership team for the Instinct Dog Behavior and Training franchise, as well as co-owner of Instinct Dog Behavior and Training Portland, which was launched in the fall of 2020. Chris, it's an honor to have you on the show. Thank you for being here. Welcome to Pet Talk today. Good morning, Will. Thank you so much for having me on the show today. It's an honor to be here as well, and I'm, I'm looking forward to diving into some of these questions that you've got for me. Thanks for the invite. Absolutely. You know, I think for the first thing that I want to talk about is I think there's, ah, you know, roughly, I could be wrong, but 150, 180 uh, pet dogs and cats for maybe about 45 veterinary behaviorist in the United States. Do I have my numbers relatively correct? 
Yeah, you know, you're you're probably probably in the ballpark. Uh, you know, we've got fewer than a hundred individuals who have been certified by the American College of Veterinary Behaviorists, and some of those do practice outside the U.S. So I don't know the exact number of us that are that are available here clinically in the continental U.S., but it's definitely less than a hundred. I can guarantee you that. And so the the demand for services, especially for the the, the specialty niche that we occupy, it, it's definitely a lot to keep up with, for sure. Absolutely. So talk to us first. I guess the first question would be for anybody listening, what's a veterinary behaviorist? What, what do veterinary behaviorists do? Yeah, so the easiest way to understand it is it's an individual who has gone through an extensive specialty training program not unlike what your medical, you know, specialist for, for yourself might have done, you know, you're a surgeon or a radiologist or an oncologist where they've gone through their traditional medical school training and then have continued on through a residency program. For the behavior college, that typically results in a three plus year program uh, involving additional case uh, management and mentorship as well as doing primary research in one of our peer-reviewed journals, as well as submitting case reports and passing a rigorous exam. And so there's, there's quite the process to, to get to this point. But ultimately what it breaks down to is that a veterinary behaviorist is someone who has had both medical training on the veterinary side to understand the physical, uh, physical needs of the animals that we're working with and how those physical issues may show up as behavior change and the individual has also had extensive training on the behavioral side as well to know what different emotional states manifest in different ways and how we can modify those problematic behaviors through science-based therapeutic interventions. And then we get the joy of being able to combine those two things, looking at both behavior as well as the medical side and figuring out which of those pieces are going to be most relevant for the animal that sitting in front of us on any given day. So what would be the most common problems that you deal with in your practice um, on a day-by-day basis? You know, when, um, when seeing, you know, patients, when seeing uh, pet owners, what are the most common things that, that you're treating that you're seeing? Sure. So we see, uh, at least in my practice, we see more dogs than we do cats, but we love seeing cats in the practice as well. Some of these answers may be a little bit more Mm dog-focused, just from the standpoint of, um, again, occupying a little bit more of our our clinical caseload on the average day. And then from there, we really branch out into a lot of different areas. I would certainly say that the most common emotional issues that we see for animals, specifically dogs, are those that are stemming from an emotional problem related to fear or anxiety or some degree of uh, insecurity or something along those lines. And then we see for that particular animal, where does it show up? Meaning, are we seeing fear of strangers? Are we seeing panic responses when an animal is left home alone? Do we see, you know, uh, issues with thunderstorms or fireworks, or perhaps are we seeing an animal that's engaging in destructive behavior or perhaps aggressive behaviors in response to that emotional response? So it really can show up in a variety of different ways, but the majority of the time we're navigating fear and anxiety and stress 
in some way, shape, or form. Now, how would you differentiate, um, you know, between a garden variety trainer? Because, you know, dog trainers are called upon to deal with, um, fears and anxieties and insecurities and aggressive behavior. So what uniquely, how would a, how would a person who has, well, say a dog, since, you know, primarily, uh, you do more with dogs than cats. How would a dog owner know what would they look for with their dog's behavior that would maybe cue them into, hey, I should look for a veterinary behaviorist, say, versus um, a dog trainer? Yeah, you know, it's a it's a simple question, Will, but actually a pretty difficult answer. Mm-hmm. You know, as 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 you know, you and I have chatted a little bit previously about it's. It's tricky because for the average pet owner, they're often coming at this uh, without an extensive background in in behavior, mm-hmm. right? And and I say that you know knowing that you know sort of like even for me, let's say I'm I'm an average car driver. I don't need to know everything about how my car works in order to drive it and love my car and all of those things. And so for the average pet owner, they don't know all of the inner workings of the animal. So knowing where and who to reach out to can actually be a bit of a tricky subject. Generally speaking, if we have a dog that we want to learn new skills, I want them to learn how to sit when I give a cue or come to me when they're off leash. I think there's a lot of really amazing skilled train out trainers out there who can really accomplish that. Uh, and then we move beyond that to say, wait a minute, we're not just trying to teach, we're trying to modify. We're actually dealing with changing behavior patterns. And so there that comes with a little bit of an additional skill set to know how to break down some of those patterns that already exist and modify them by setting the animal up to be successful. And then we add another layer where we're talking perhaps about more of the underlying emotional issues and this is specifically where the veterinary piece comes in. If there's even a bit of a question about the physical health of that animal, even for some of our youngsters who are experiencing pain or discomfort or irritation because they're not sleeping well or because they've got chronic allergies and so they're chronically irritable because they don't feel well, those sorts of issues really do benefit from having that veterinary consultation as well. And even though veterinarians across the country are, are uniquely qualified there to address the medical issues, many of the veterinarians here do not fully understand the intersection of the medical issues with the behavior side. So it, it becomes a sort of tricky mix. I, I guess I would go back to saying that, you know, generally speaking, I find that pet owners tend to reach out to individuals in their community who are already familiar to them. And to me, then, it's the responsibility of the trainers or the veterinarians or the behavior consultants to get a little bit of information about what that pet owner is concerned about to say, am I the person who's best suited to help you, or should we escalate? Should we do this differently, even though you reached out to me? I think you're actually better suited to work with X, Y, or Z. So it's a bit of a complex answer, uh, unfortunately, but that's that's sort of the nature of the beast here. It is. We've got to take a quick break here to hear from our sponsors. Um, but when we come back, 
Um, we will be talking more with Dr. Christopher Pockel, board-certified veterinary behaviorist, talking about different behavioral conditions that you may need a veterinary behaviorist for and how they can help your pets. So don't go anywhere when we come back more of Dr. Christopher Pockel. Everybody when they come to my door I'll eat anything if it falls on the floor Now I've heard the rumors I think I better ask you I heard I might be a dog Won't somebody please tell me it ain't true I like to sit by the window Protecting my world I'll bark my head off when I Welcome back, everybody. I'm Will Bangura. You are listening to Pet Talk today on 1100 KFNX. Today we are talking with board-certified veterinary behaviorist Christopher Pockel and talking about what the field of veterinary behaviorists can do for you. Um, when would you look to a veterinary behaviorist and what type of situations do they treat? Um, Dr. Pockel, thanks for staying with us. Um, one of the things that I think is um, obviously unique about your specialty is that um, it's a specialty that deals with uh, behavioral medicine uh, for dogs. And, you know, a lot of times people will hear that and they'll say, gosh, do our dogs and our cats have psychiatric problems just like people do? So do you ever hear that? Did you ever hear those questions? Absolutely. Almost every day that I go to work. <laughs> so what say it's, you? It's a, <laughs> yeah, it's a common question. And, and the answer is, you know, when it comes to the way in which our brains are structured, and I say our, mm-hmm. you know, I'm standing in my home office right now staring at my, my bull terrier, uh, rat terrier mix. Uh, breed dog named Cornelius, and I'm looking sort of like at the two of us, and I say, yes, our brains are actually a whole lot more similar than they are different. Now, what we do and the actual behavior patterns do vary, of course, between humans and primates and dogs or other canines, but when it comes to the places where our brains can be adversely affected by stress or fear, or anxiety, or impacted by our prior learning experiences, gosh, they're, they're far more similar than they are different. So the vast majority of issues that do affect people and other animals can also affect our companion animals, too. Now, this is where it gets a little bit tricky, too, is figuring out, now, wait a minute, are they exactly the same, or are there some differences here? And that's where having a qualified professional assist with that guidance can be super helpful. How would somebody even begin to um, think about, you know, whether or not their pet might need some behavioral medicine? Yeah, it's amazing what animals truly can tell us when we know how to sort of tap into their language. And, and, and they're really, I'm talking in most cases about body language and looking at individual dogs as well as uh, certain breeds and certain patterns of, of dogs and understanding exactly sort of what what do they show when they're stressed? What do they show when they're relaxed? What do they show when they truly want to engage with people versus when they're being a little bit more aloof? And so having someone who can 
sort of tease that out, not simply by saying your dog must sit because we said so, but let's actually check in a little bit and find out how comfortable your animal is in this situation or this one so that we can really help them be comfortable knowing that when animals are calm and relaxed, it's not an automatic solution to the behavior problems that we're experiencing, but it sure goes a long way towards getting us closer to fixing those issues. Mm-hmm. And, and so is that then always the goal for behavioral medicine? Is it just to bring about um, enhanced relaxation and a sense of calmness so that the pet can then learn and be worked with, or is there more to it than that? Yeah, so the way that I approach the, the, the concept of medication within my practice is, is really twofold. The first one is understanding that when I say medication, of course, I am thinking about pharmaceuticals, but I'm also thinking about pheromones and supplements and nutrition and herb therapy and basically anything that we can give or provide to an animal that impacts the way their brain functions in such a way that they may be more more open to changing some of their behavioral patterns. So that's part of it, is sort of casting a bit of a broader broader range here rather than only thinking about pharmaceuticals the way some people might think, you know, gosh, if I go to the vet behaviors, we're going to have to put my dog on antidepressants. Mm-hmm. Uh, not necessarily a common assumption here, or at least that's not the reality of what we see. But the other side of this is also to say, where do medications even sit? Medications do not teach behavior. So if we're dealing with a behavior problem of some sort, we're typically saying, yeah, if we want that animal's behavior to improve, we've got to start from the place of behavior modification. How do we teach them how to be, whether it's more comfortable or in some cases more assertive or in some ways addressing the emotion or the behavioral pattern that they're showing, that's always got to be a part of our picture. And until we've done that, we may also need to focus on management to keep that out of that animal out of situations in which they may be, well, inappropriately triggered to react or, or feel emotions that they're just not quite prepared to deal with yet. And if we're struggling to make headway, we're struggling to modify those emotions or behavioral patterns, or maybe we can't fully avoid those triggers, the animal is experiencing an ongoing level of distress, then that's the place where we may pull medication in to facilitate facilitate the rest of that program. But it's not the case where any of us should expect that we can simply go to the veterinarian or the veterinary behaviorist, get a prescription, and, you know, have the choir of angels singing Mm -hmm. because that's magically going to fix the problem. That's just generally not how it works anymore for dogs than it does for people, truthfully. Absolutely. The the combination is always going to work uh, best together when there's a uh, behavior modification um, going on with the training as well as if, if there are some uh, pharmacological interventions as well. Uh, I guess that, that brings me to a question of um, are, are are there certain situations where you would say, hey, we really need to start training and behavior modification first, then, you know, maybe we, we may look to, um, in addition to that, doing some medication or some type of supplements or pheromones, or are there situations 
And if there are, what might they be where, hey, the pet needs to be on medication, really needs to be uh, stabilized before you can really start getting in there and, and doing much training and behavior modification. Are there things like that in, in some more severe type cases? There certainly are, you know, and a lot of that when we do an initial assessment for a, for a new patient where, where myself or one of the doctors who works in my practice is getting to know that animal and getting to know the client and the living situation, we're assessing a lot of different details to try to figure out what's the urgency. You know, is this something that truly needs to be remedied ASAP? Either because of the the emotional state that that animal's in, if they're in a you know a, a near constant state of panic, even if we're going to be able to make progress with behavior modification, we have to understand that the brain is not really functioning at its best in that moment. So there may be more acute or urgent cases where getting started with medication sort of gives us a, a foot in the door, if you will, to be able to really start to make some of that progress. But I would say the majority of the cases that come through my practice, at least, if we don't have any significant degree of training or management on board already, we typically start there to say, well, wait a minute, let's see what's possible. Let's make sure that we're providing appropriate and sufficient mental and physical exercise. Let's make sure we're giving your dog the guidance to know, what do I want you to do in each of these situations? And if your dog is struggling to learn, especially because of an underlying emotional issue, then, yeah, we may decide to augment that plan with medication of some sort. But I'm not necessarily just saying because the animal was diagnosed with X as the problem, therefore, we need to treat with medication. The actual decision and and prescribing process is a lot more nuanced. We've got to take a hard break here for news. When we come back, um, we'll be talking more about uh, veterinary behaviorists and how they can help your pets. Don't go anyway. We'll be back right after the news. Would you like to go on walkies? Welcome back, everybody. I'm Will Bangura. You are listening to Pet Talk today here on the Pulse of Arizona 1100 KFNX. We are interviewing Dr. Christopher Pockle, board-certified veterinary behaviorist. Chris, thanks for being here. We really appreciate you being with us today. Um, we were talking about um, behavioral medicine, and you also had mentioned that, um, you know, there are some natural things that are out there, pheromone supplements. Um have you had much success with that? You know, I've talked to um, a lot of clients out there that have dogs with anxiety, a lot of dogs that have uh, a lot of fear issues and aggression issues. And um, I get very mixed uh, reports from people out there from, uh, you know, supplements and, and pheromones. Um, anything out there that you have found that uh, works well? 
Yeah, so the, the, the easiest answer there is nothing's going to work all of the time. But mm-hmm. almost everything can work some of the time. And I have to remind myself, because I get very similar responses from my clients too, and especially with a lot of the supplements and, and pheromones that are available over the counter, gosh, if it worked really, really well straight out of the gate without a whole lot of additional support, that client wouldn't now be reaching out to me for additional help and they wouldn't be reaching out to you either. Mm-hmm. So I think we often do get a, a bit of a biased population where we're seeing some of the non-responders or some of the less responders. So that's part of it. The other piece that which I find fascinating is that I, I do find that we do get responders to some of those products and Yet for some of our animals who are experiencing more significant levels of fear or anxiety, even if they came into me and said, yeah, 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 I tried pheromones, that didn't work. And then we go ahead and we get a behavior modification program on board and we get some progress going. There are cases where even retrialing that same pheromone, let's say, now yields a clinical benefit. So I think in some cases we're asking some of those supplements or pheromones to do too big of a job, but unless they're combined with some degree of training or environmental management, we're not going to see that whole benefit that we're looking for. So it's more the multimodal approach that allows us to really see what they're doing. Gotcha. Gotcha. How you you also talked about diet um, a little while back in in our conversation. Um, How does diet play a role when it comes to, uh, you know, some of these behavioral issues, specifically, you know, fears and anxieties and aggression? Well, animals are very much the same as, as us in, in regards to the fact that if they don't feel well, the level of irritability is greater, their tolerance is going to be lower, they may be more likely to snap or show signs of, of distress. So starting out for me is making sure that we're, we're feeding a balanced nutritional source that that really allows the animal to feel and function at their best. And that can actually be a little bit trickier than it sounds to really figure out. So we're looking at coat quality. We're looking at stool odor and, you know, the stool quality and the frequency of defecation and all of these things to get a sense of, do we have a healthy animal in front of us? Moving beyond that, we can also look at protein levels or perhaps even protein types if we start thinking more about nutrition from a Chinese medicine standpoint, and all of these things can influence the behavior of, of animals if, if their diet is just not meeting their needs as, as best as it possibly could. What are some of the more common underlying medical conditions, illnesses and diseases that have strong contributing factors to uh, behavioral problems? I would say in my practice, without a doubt, I would put the sort of the big picture umbrella of pain as the factor. Now, obviously, pain is not a diagnosis, but pain can come from arthritis. Pain can come from, you know, soft tissue sprains or strains. Pain can come from the, the inflammation of allergies. Pain can come from an ear infection. It can come from all sorts of different places. But that is by far and away one of the most common things that we see as a big influence on behavior. 
We also see other issues like perhaps some of the hormonal changes like thyroid levels or increased levels of steroid hormones that are causing uh, functional changes in the way that animal's body is working as well. Uh, so all sorts of things can factor in there. But yeah, pain, discomfort, irritability, allergies, gosh, even some of our, our brachycephalic dogs with the cute little smushed-in noses, they're actually chronically sleep-deprived because they're not oxygenating well. And these are a lot of the underlying medical issues that aren't necessarily visible at first glance, but when we dig a little bit deeper, we can really help these animals be so much more comfortable. That's fascinating. You know, you, you say that about them, um, you know, being chronically sleep deprived. What do you do? I mean, you can't really put a CPAP machine on them or anything like that. What do you do for something like that? Yeah, it, de- <laughs> it depends on the animal. It depends on the breed. It depends on which options are available to us. For some of those dogs, especially if we're thinking about, let's say, the Frenchies or the yeah. American Bulldogs, When we identify certain patterns associated with upper airway disorders, there are surgical corrections that can be done in some of those cases to open up that airway and actually allow for more appropriate sleep patterns. Not every animal is a candidate for that, Mm -hmm. but in some cases that is an option uh, and can in some cases make a huge difference even from a behavioral perspective. Gotcha. Gotcha. Um, so would they, is there like a, a otolaryngologist, a surgeon that they would see for something like that in the veterinary world? Uh-huh. <laughs> I'm, I'm assuming yeah. you've got a specialty for everything, so I'm assuming that, that that must be who they would see for something like that. Never even... do, yeah. In the veterinary world, it's not quite as specific as, yeah. let's say, an otolaryngologist. Yeah. Yes. Tongue-tied even trying to say that again. But yes, we're typically looking at a soft tissue surgeon, mm-hmm. one who really focuses on upper airway disorders. Gotcha. Um, you talked a little bit about hormonal uh, issues as it relates to behavioral problems. Um, how much of a uh, impact does, um, it, when we're talking about, we'll just keep it specific to dogs, um, um Thyroid disorder, hypothyroidism, how big of an impact is or isn't it? Is is it a big impact when it comes to behavior with dogs? You know, I would say in my clinical population, it's it's not terribly common. And we're even seeing that select population where where we are looking for underlying medical issues. Uh, I think where it gets a little bit tricky is that we can have many dogs who are diagnosed with hypothyroidism or, or low thyroid values that don't show any behavioral changes whatsoever other than perhaps a little bit of lower energy. And yet we also know that in some cases, and this is really even a subset of that hypothyroid population, low thyroid values can also be associated with an increased level of irritability. So it's something that we screen for. And Mm -hmm. we do know that some of our medication therapies, not only for behavior, but some of our other therapeutics for seizure disorders and other things, can have an, uh, an impact on thyroid levels. So it's often something that we're checking for, but it's not necessarily something that's going to be a common part of our treatment plan. Mm-hmm. What other type of uh, diseases or underlying medical conditions might be more typical, if, if there is such a thing, that would uh, impact behavior? Would uh, Cushing's disease or, or any others that you can think of? 
Absolutely. So when we start thinking about endocrine or hormonal disorders like Cushing's disease or Addison's disease, there we're really getting into the body's ability or lack of ability to produce steroid hormones within the body or even regulate their electrolytes if we're thinking more about the Addison side of things. And with Cushing's, for example, where we're seeing an overproduction of steroid hormone, that can be associated with anxiety, that can be associated with some physical changes in the body due to that chronic steroid overproduction, and we can absolutely see levels of irritability versus when we're talking about Addison's, which is more of an underproduction, that may show up more from the standpoint of an animal who shows less resilience when it comes to stress and may actually be having life-threatening crises in response to stressful situations because of the dysregulation that happens within their actual body because of their inability to, well, to respond to stress, for sure. Okay. We've got to take a quick break uh, to hear from our sponsors, uh, but when we come back, um, we're going to be asking more questions for Dr. Christopher Pockel, board-certified veterinary behaviorist, also the owner and operator of the Animal Behavior Clinic in Portland, Oregon. Don't go anywhere. When we come back, more great information for you and your pets. He never tells me that he's sick of this house. He never says, why don't you get off that couch? He don't cost me nothing when he wants to go out. I want you to love me like my dog. He never says I need a new attitude. Him and my sister ain't always in a few. When I leave the seat up, he don't think that Welcome back, everybody. You are listening to Pet Talk Today on the Pulse of Arizona 1100 KFNX. I'm Will Bangora. We're talking with veterinary behaviorist Dr. Christopher Pockel. Chris, thanks for staying with us. Um, now, talk to us a little bit about um, your profession. Now, as far as the vast majority of veterinary behaviorists that um that you i don't know not necessarily work with on a, a day-by-day basis but the folks within your field how many um do a lot of hands-on training with uh the pets and the pet owners uh versus um doing more uh medication uh medical physical medicine type of uh work with their clients you know, honestly, it's going to vary more based on the, the animal in front of us mm-hmm. more so than, let's say, what happens in my practice versus someone else's practice. And what I mean by that is, at least the way that we practice here at the Animal Behavior Clinic, well, pre-COVID, when we were working with our clients and our animals all in the same room the whole time, what we were able to do is look at some of the training interventions and say, how does this actually inform the way that this dog is learning? And also looking at that from an assessment and saying, 
what is within this owner's skill set? What are their handling skills? Do they know how to communicate with this animal? And so we're looking at that as an initial in, uh, initial assessment, not necessarily saying we're going to spend our entire session working on training exercises, but more incorporating that into the assessment so we understand which pieces are going to be relevant so that we can confidently say, yes, this is a scenario that we can address with training. This is a scenario where we need to dig out more of the underlying physical issues or perhaps this is a scenario that, that may benefit from emotional medication support. So from that standpoint, we work extensively not only with the trainers and veterinary technicians in our practices, but also working collaboratively with trainers and behavior consultants in our respective communities to really get that team collaboration approach mm-hmm. so that we're getting those animals the support they need uh, without necessarily requiring that the client spends hours and hours and hours with a veterinary behaviorist where, where the cost of hourly services is likely to be higher than it would be if we were doing more of the hands-on with a trainer or behavior consultant. Gotcha. Um, let's talk a little bit about some more in terms of, you know, just good old-fashioned behavioral problems. Um I think one of the most challenging things out there that uh, I deal with with clients is is intra-dog aggression. What about in your practice? You know, I, I wouldn't say that there's necessarily one thing that's going to be more challenging than the other. I think it's, uh, at least in my practice, I'm thinking more about what are the tools or the skills that we have available. So in some houses, for example, if we're dealing with that inter-dog aggression or the housemates who are, who are squabbling with one another, you know, there's a lot of variables there. So are they injuring one another? Are we talking about an open floor plan versus something that's a bit more segmented? Do we have dogs who are already crate trained or who have some basic training foundations already on board? Those things make more of a difference for me than the actual diagnosis or the the problem, if you will, that the client is bringing to our doorstep. When, you know, there's all kinds of information on the Internet, believe it or not. (laughs) And uh, um, so much information about dog training, dog behavior, you know, dogs are pack animals, dogs are not pack animals, uh, dogs have rigid hierarchy structures. They have fluid hierarchy structures. They don't have hierarchy structures. Um, what's your position on that when it comes to the domesticated dog in, in a typical home? Yeah, it's, it's a, it's a complicated scenario. So how much time do we have through Will? <laughs> no, I'm, I'm kidding. You, you know how complicated this is already as well. But for, for the average dog in a household, I wouldn't say that hierarchy doesn't exist. But dogs are not wolves. And in fact, even if we look at the sort of modern ancestors of the domestic dogs, so looking at feral dogs, they actually don't form hierarchy structures. If we're looking at sort of roaming feral dogs in communities, they're much more solitary scavengers than they are rigid pack animals. We really don't see that structure that we see in some of the family-based canids, more like the wild wolf population. So the simplest way for me to think about that is that while there may be some hierarchy that exists, 
it's actually not terribly relevant for most of our training interventions, and it's not terribly relevant for most of the problem behaviors that we see. We can address those issues and we can understand dogs by basically asking more simple questions. What are you doing? What would I like you to do instead? And how do I give you some appropriate feedback and guidance so that I can strengthen the behaviors or increase the behaviors that I want to see more of? And I can manage so that you're not given the opportunity to practice or rehearse some of the things that might get you into trouble. I can do all of that without even tipping a toe into the hierarchy in a way that often confuses our training methods. And, and that leads me to another question. How important are the labels? You know, dominance, dominance aggression, territorial aggression, fear aggression, resource guarding. How important are those labels? I think as long as we're defining what they are, I think they can be helpful to kind of get us into the same ballpark. But for me, at least in the way I practice in in the animal behavior clinic, even if I make that diagnosis of saying, yes, this is a dog who's displaying territorial aggression, and for this dog, it looks like this. So I need to operationalize that and say, is this an animal who's primarily vocal and that's the problem that that they're displaying? Is this an animal, if given the opportunity, will rush towards a non-family member and threaten them but doesn't bite? Or is this a dog that will more quickly go to that bite response? Just having the diagnosis of territorial aggression kind of gets me in the ballpark, but I need to know more and I need to describe more within my diagnosis before I really know where we're starting from or where we're headed. As what always happens, every time I have a guest on the show, we run out of time. The time go, goes by so unbelievably fast. Um, gosh, I really appreciate uh, you taking the time to be here and answering uh, some of these questions. Um, I've got to wrap up in about two minutes here. I'm going to throw a question at you that probably uh, we can't do justice in two minutes. But uh, talk about the difference between anxiety or an anxious dog, and a fearful dog? Oh, my goodness. Yeah, well, I, the, the two-minute answer is that I actually recorded a podcast on that particular topic with <sighs> Hannah Brannigan on her Drinking from the Toilet podcast. So you've got a whole hour and 15 minutes of which to dive into that in that particular detail. The short answer here is that fear is a negative emotional response to a discrete stimulus. The emotional reaction sort of kicks off when the animal experiences that trigger and it starts to go away as soon as the trigger goes away. Whereas anxiety is more of an apprehensive anticipation of that threat. The thing isn't really there, but it could be. And that often happens when an animal either doesn't feel like they have any control over their environment or their environment is perceived by them as being unpredictable and worrisome. So they often overlap, but they do have very distinct patterns as well as very distinct treatments. And so that podcast on that Drinking from the Toilet uh, podcast with Hannah Brannigan would be a great deep dive for any of the listeners who want a bit more information. And Dr. Pockel, if our listeners would like to get in touch with you, um, if they have a veterinarian of their own that would like to consult perhaps with you about a behavioral issue, how can they do that? We've got about 30 seconds. The best way is to check out the uh, Animal Behavior Clinic 
www.ghostnet.net website, and especially on the services tab, we've got information there about what how, what our doctors do, whether that's direct consulting with clients or whether it's a vet-to-vet consulting practice as well, which is a huge part of what we do. We love working with clients and vets all over the country. And is there a website for that? Yep, animalbehaviorclinic.net is going to be the practice site. And if clients are looking for more information about some of the other recordings or videos that I've done, they can find all of those at drpockle.com. Spell that for us. At drpachel.com. Great. Thank you again. Really appreciate you taking the time to be on Pet Talk today. It has been an honor. Um, folks, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Like I said, uh, it has been a long time coming where we have tried to have a veterinary behaviorist um, on the show. Um, if you've got a dog or if you've got a cat that uh, has severe behavior problems, severe fears, uh, severe anxiety, uh, severe aggression issues, um, not just your run-of-the-mill behavior problems, but more severe problems, um, especially when it's in the realm of fears and anxieties, uh, you may need help from a veterinary behaviorist. Join us next week where we will be back here as we are each and every Saturday morning from 9 to 10 a.m. Next week, we'll be taking your calls and answering your pet behavior and training questions. Have a fantastic weekend. Don't go anywhere. Up next, Angie Samuels and the Safe Money Show. News, talk, sports. The Pulse of Arizona, 1100 KFNX, Phoenix.